Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This podcast was previously posted on September 29, 2016. On March 3, 2016, I had a chance to sit down with author Jonathan Letham in front of a Berkeley audience as a benefit for KPFA. Jonathan is the author of several novels, including Motherless Brooklyn, Fortress of Solitude, Chronic City, and recently Dissident Gardens, along with short story collections and a book of essays titled The Ecstasy of Influence. The event was intended as a career retrospective, the first 45 minutes devoted to my questions, followed by a period of questions from the audience which I read from little cards, and then my follow-ups. Jonathan's collection, Lucky Allen, had just come out in trade paperback, and that's where we begin the discussion. What influences in the short story realm are the ones that are basic to you? I sort of came late to the short story. I love novels first, and I, I tried to write novels first. I had a number of favorite writers when I was a teenager who I kind of organized my sense of what I wanted to do and who I identified with. In fact, they all did write short stories too. You know, Graham Greene, Patricia Highsmith, Philip K. Dick. You know, these were some of the writers that I identified with initially. But in almost every case, I preferred their novels. I thought they were better. They were more natural novelists. And honestly, I think if it came down to it, I may be more natively a novelist. But I also, a little bit later, I fell in love with some writers, many of whom were working in a kind of, you know, what I think of as like the international fabulation gang. Italo Calvino and, and Stanislaw Lem and Kafka and Borges, Julio Cortazar. And they were all better, actually, for the most part, in short lengths. And it was true as well of J.G. Ballard who became very important to me. And he has good novels, but I think the essence of his work is in the short stories. And so it was a little bit later that I started to think I could try to work in this more compressed form. And those writers were the ones that that drew me into trying to do it. When you were starting out, you were writing short stories, right? I, I actually wrote a novel before I ever tried a short story. I have two kind of false starts. I wrote a novel beginning when I was 15. Uh, you know, I thought it was a novel. It was 125 pages. But then I began another one when I was in college. And this was, I think of as that start as the real start. And it's certainly when I, when I began writing and didn't stop again. And in fact, it was so consuming an occupation that I, you know, it overtook my, my schoolwork. I didn't last as a college student because I wanted to write this novel. And I finished that whole misshapen, fledgling novel over a period of about three years, from age 18 to 21, before I ever tried a short story. And it was only after that that I began to, to write short stories. And that was when I was out here. I moved into my friend Adam's garage on the edge of Wildcat Canyon, and I didn't have a car, and I didn't have anywhere to go except to take walks along the back of the canyon. And I was writing short stories very much under the spell of Calvino and Ballard at that point. And some of those actually ended up being the first published short stories. Others failed as short stories but got melted into Amnesia Moon. So there are portions of that book that, um, even though it was my second published novel, it actually has some of the earliest writing I ever managed to do that was, you know, good enough. And that was when you were working at Moe's and Pegasus? Not or? yet. Not, not yet. yet. I bounced around a little bit. I went back to... Actually, I did walk into Moe's and hand him my resume at that point. Um, but, but he didn't uh, hire me just yet. And then I, I went back east because I had a girlfriend at college. And I sort of went to see her through graduation and then convinced her to move back to Berkeley with me. And we got an apartment in the flats. And I took my resume over to Pegasus and started working on Solano Avenue. 
This would be 86. When did you start getting involved with the science fiction people, like when I met you? Well, you know, it was really Paul Williams who pulled me in. I was very driven to, to meet Philip K. Dick. When I was a teenager, I was sure I was going to come to California and seek him out. And actually, I was really mixed up. At that point, from the distance of New York, I didn't understand that he wasn't living in Northern California anymore. He was down in L.A. at that point. He was up here for a couple of years in like 78. Uh, but, yeah, but yeah. this was much later. I mean, when I, was, when I was reading him, I was in high school, and then in that first year of college, he was living in Fullerton. I missed my chance. He died in 82 when I was still a freshman in college and just beginning that novel and fantasizing about dropping out of college and coming west to meet him. And then, you know, I, was, I felt very tragic that I couldn't go and place myself at the you know, feet of my, my hero. But I sort of did the next best thing, which was I ran out here and introduced myself to Paul Williams, who was then his literary executor and was running a thing called the Philip K. Dick Society, which was... It seems strange now because all of his books are in print and he's a sort of gigantic academic fetish and he's also commercially very viable because of all the movies that have been made. But at the, t the time, he was a marginal figure in some senses, even within science fiction, and his books were not in print. His books were not in print. I, marginal is hard to say. I mean, everybody I knew in the field idolized the guy. Well, but you were also living in the Bay Area where it, yeah, the flame was probably and I knew Paul. strongest and you yeah. knew Paul. I mean, when the Philip K. Dick Society newsletter began, the, the subscriber base grew slowly to 800 people all over the, the globe who cared enough about this guy's legacy to receive the, you know, this sort of transmission. And that was how small the cult was officially at that time. Anyway, so I was hanging around with Paul, and he said to me, you know, if you like this kind of writing, which I, you know, I, I did in my peculiar way think of myself as a science fiction fan, an aspiring science fiction writer. Of course, I had in mind this amalgam of Cortazar, Calvino, Kafka, Dick, Ballard, and Lem, which had very little to do with the field as it understood itself then. But in, if, as long as I didn't have anything to do with that field, I could think, of course they, they all love exactly the same thing I do, and they're all waiting for me to present myself as, you know, the next chapter. There was a great science fiction convention about to happen at the Claremont Hotel called Sircon One. The idea was this was going to be a kind of a literary science fiction convention. So it seemed like the proposition was, was just right for me to go and and, and meet people, and Paul told me to come to this thing, and I waded in. And I hadn't been active in anything like that subculture on the East Coast. I hadn't made any contact with it. So this was really my first taste of that whole universe, was, was right here in the Bay Area. And it was very lively. It was also still very much of a bohemian demimond. You know, I mean, the, the Bay Area was, the dominant figures were people like Philip K. Dick and the legacy of Ursula Le Guin and well, Bob Silverberg was and here. Bob Silverberg and Bob Silverberg. And Terry Carr. And uh, I guess also uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley was a very important right. figure in the environment. And suddenly they were all sort of waddling around, and I could kind of look at them and, and tr try to get a, a measure of what this activity consisted of. But it's also true that the commercial field, the real publishing action, had moved into a much more conservative phase. The kind of writing I idealized was actually passe. You know, after after the Star Wars movies came out in the 70s and after the sort of the commercial fantasy that molded itself on Tolkien, like the sort of Shannara. What I identified as the interesting stuff, the new wave, you know, uh, Samuel Delaney and Thomas Dish and J.G. Ballard, Pamela Zoline, this was seen as uncommercial and kind of um, out of fashion. Okay, so you're here and you're writing, and at that point, what brought you to write Gone with Occasional Music. Were you also a noir reader? Well, yeah. So I'd grown up reading Raymond Chandler. I neglected to add his name to that list. Actually, he's another one who fits with Graham Greene and Patricia Highsmith in, in that I preferred the novels. Just, right. you know, I, I, I saw he was also a short story writer, but I never thought that he, he'd mastered that form in, in a way that interested me. The key novels, you know, The Big Sleep and, for me, Farewell, My Lovely, and then The Long Goodbye, to me, were great American novels, and they, they were an entryway, because I kind of began with Chandler. I was a snob. I, I didn't think very many other people were any good at all. But of course, it was an entryway into discovering Hammett and then Ross MacDonald, and those are writers that have remained very important to me. But I also had the luck, when I first moved out to Berkeley, of 
running into Barry Gifford, who was presiding over the Black Lizard series and these incredible rediscoveries. And, you know, as a, someone who was kind of a denizen of used bookshops, I always preferred lost books and out-of-print books and rediscovered authors to the obvious ones. And so this whole idea of a publishing program of, you know, lost crime writers was, uh, it was a jolt of electricity. And suddenly I encountered Charles Williford and Jim Thompson and these writers, David Goodis, they were a little different from the hard-boiled crime writers because they didn't have that strain of nobility that runs through the detective stories where there's always this crusading, you know, jaded but honorable detective. Instead, they were stories about criminals. And this connected to me to a number of things that had, in, had become very interesting to me. I was also going to the PFA and looking at film noir all of a sudden. But it also connected to beat writing. You know, when I read something like Williford's novels, the way he depicted the undertow of American society made me think of, you know, the things that had interested me in, you know, a book like uh, Kerouac's The Subterraneans. And in a way that I identified with not the criminal aspect, but the marginality, because of the way I'd grown up inside a kind of a subcultural world. And also, a, truthfully, a lot of my appetites in culture were things that connected to what my childhood felt like. New York City was a kind of dystopian place. It felt like a combination of a, you know, a Jim Thompson novel and a J.G. Ballard novel when I was a kid. It was, it was a lost city in many ways. It's come so far back now that people can't really imagine how, you know, rabid it was. But also, it was a, a wide open place. There was lots of art and there was lots of stuff because it was a fallen place. Were you mostly staying in Brooklyn? Were you heading into Manhattan? Well, okay, so yeah, going back to, I'm, I'm starting so many different stories all simultaneously. As a kid, I was a public school kid in Brooklyn, and it was very much initially, you know, conformed to that kind of, that Henry Miller, if you read Black Spring, you know, playing stickball on the street, uh, or if you read Call It Sleep, Henry Roth's story, you know, there were two worlds. There was the world of my parents inside the house, which, you know, my father he was a painter. He had advanced degrees. He had been in Paris to study painting. He taught for a while at Columbia. My mother was actually a college dropout from Queens College, but was a great reader and very sophisticated. And their friends were very interesting. It was a kind of an intellectual bohemian life inside the house. But when I went out on the street, I was thrust into this alchemical street life of black and Hispanic kids mixed together, playing, inventing the rules, with no one looking. When I describe this life, it's, it's like the one that Emmett Grogan is describing in Ring Olivio. It's the one you see Henry Miller talking about in Black Spring. And I think it's still there on the streets of Brooklyn, this self-invention. Kids, you know, working it out for themselves and talking a street language. And that was my life until high school. And then I made this very deliberate kind of pole vault by applying to music and art high school. And that took me out of Brooklyn and into, into Manhattan. And to a high school that was a public school, but it was, you know, you could only get into it by audition if you were a musician or by presenting a portfolio as a visual artist, which is how I got in. And so there I was with a sort of, you know, the art nerds of New York City uh, all collected, you know, taking the subway every day to this site in Harlem. And it connected my life to you know, Greenwich Village and the Upper West Side because kids lived all over the place. So that was a major expansion of my universe at that point. We're going to be coming back to that because that's so much your later work. Yeah, of course. You know. But yeah. let's get back for a second to Gun with Occasional Music. So you knew about noir and you were a science fiction right. fan. Yeah. I think George Alec Effinger wrote a science fiction mystery, but there were very, very few at the time. Well, I'll tell you, actually, it's often the case that you know, you, you begin a project in defiance in some sense or, or with a chip on your shoulder. So here I am beginning to identify, maybe I could be a science fiction writer, but I, I want to be this sort of literary kind that talks about Borges and Calvino all the time, and I'm not sure this is going to work. And suddenly, cyberpunk breaks out. And William Gibson was this explosive presence and very enviable because he was getting kind of attention for being literary in a certain way. He was. His work was very strongly influenced by Pynchon, and it was very, the language was very compressed and 
exciting, and of course it was prescient. He had something of Philip K. Dick's quality of prescience. You know, you could feel that he had seen a different world coming, and he was describing it for you. But along with the other ways that he was being celebrated or exalted at that moment, people would say, this is hard-boiled science fiction. And I kind of just decided I was pissed off about that. I was like, no. The hard-boiled novel is a very specific thing. It's a, it's a, it's a subgenre that f has a formal property. It's as formalist as a sonnet. You know, you have a detective and they have a certain attitude towards the world and they organize reality in a certain structured way and I'm going to show you. I'll show you what a real hard-boiled science fiction novel would look like. And that was my project, was to take that term and realize it. So I, I decided to make a kind of absolute alchemical combination of Philip K. Dick and Raymond Chandler. In a way, it was a very a deliberate project and a very cocky project to take my, you know, two of my favorite writers and think I would somehow do justice to them simultaneously. But that was the, the basis for that. You had connections in the field, but getting something published is always a struggle. Yeah. Well, I had strange luck. I ended up being edited by a brilliant man named Michael Kandel, who was at Harcourt Brace. At that time, it was Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. The name has, keeps changing, depending on, I guess, who buys them. But at that time, it was Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. And he was their in-house translation expert. And in fact, he had translated almost all of Stanislaw Lem's books from the Polish. That was his real reputation, was as a translator. And he, there was an interesting moment where Umberto Eco was the biggest writer on, on the planet. You know, when The Name of the Rose came out, I remember actually selling copies of it at the counter of, of Pegasus. And it was, you know, it was the book of that year. And I think... Michael had kind of saved their bacon by doing some last-minute translation fix-it work on it. There was a very famous translator from the Italian whose name was on the book, but Michael had selflessly covered this guy's ass, I guess. So they were so grateful to Michael and the company that they said, what do you want to do? We, we owe you one. And he said, I want to be an acquiring editor. I'd like to, you know, and they were sort of like, what, our translation guy is going to be an acquiring editor? Well, what are you going to do? And he said, I don't know, but I'm going to find something I like. And I was the first book acquired by this, you know, guy who was really actually an academic. He wasn't a professional publishing man, but he was the most devoted uh, line editor possible. You know, in ordinary commercial publishing, you have the acquiring editor who's good at talking to the sales force and, uh, you know, kind of manipulating the giant commercial machine. And then you have the copy editor who is like a, a troll under a bridge who f does all the line editing. But in this case, the, the editor who had acquired it, Michael, actually did the copy edits himself. And so it was like going to school. And he was such a precise and obsessive line editor because he was a translator. So he measured every line in those first couple of novels and helped me get them exactly right, which was a, it was a magical piece of good fortune. What effect do you think working in a used bookstore where you had access to a lot of stuff that was out of print and that no one else heard of, what, how did that affect you in terms of your writing? Yeah, I, it's uh, impossible to overstate the degree to which I, I feel that my discovery of what I wanted to do with my life really flows out of my reading and specifically this preoccupation with, with older books and with books as not as a kind of frontline commercial product. I mean, it was, it was many, many years before I even realized that new bookstores excluded all the old stuff and only had this sort of cresting wave of things that had just been published. I didn't care about what was in the newspapers being reviewed. I wanted to kind of quest and unearth things. And so, you know, growing up, I always hung around. I was, you know, like, I was like a a cat in a bodega. I would just hang around used bookstores and talk to the the clerks, you know, when they could be bothered to talk to me. And then eventually I sort of talked my way into being the kid who sweeps up the shop or occasionally ran the register. And I would always take my pay home in books. I didn't have a, a job in the normal sense until I came to Berkeley and worked at Pegasus. But I'd worked at three or four 
used bookstores in Brooklyn before I even went off to college. And then when I first dropped out of school and I was in New York City, I did work briefly at a really lovely bookshop on Broadway on the Upper West Side called Griffin, which I think is still there. And that was a glimpse of the real antiquarian trade, and I started to see how it worked. And I made I, that was where I qualified myself to come and, you know, push a resume under Moe's nose and claim to be, you know, able to be a professional used bookman. You know, but it's a real guild. So this atmosphere of discovery and cherishing lost things and knowing which things had value, but also I think in, my, in a way it's a, it's a world of, you know, this, this word gets overused now, but it, of curation. You know, putting together a good used book section, knowing which books are worth having on the shelf and what, how to price them, and then maybe recommending books to people who want something, you're making something. And I think of my own writing as connected to that kind of curation. You know, it's like my influences flow into the, the work I'm doing, and that comes out of my reading, and it comes out of my knowledge, and it comes out of my curiosity. And it's very similar to putting together a good, you know, a good shelf. And that sort of comes back to your essay, Ecstasy of Influence, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I guess I've always had this, you know, I mean, well, you heard me do it. When I just said that my first novel it was a, you know, transparent attempt to fuse Dick and Chandler. Now, it isn't always quite so bald as that description, but the truth is I've never felt that there was anything to hide. And this sometimes, I think, has early on, I didn't realize that it would be disconcerting to people because it took me a long time to realize that many other people either kind of sublimated their influences even to themselves, so they weren't conscious of them. They did have this sort of famous Harold Bloom anxiety of influence where it wasn't a, wasn't a comfortable thing to be influenced. Or if they were conscious the way I was, they were dodgy about it. You know, kind of like the way Bob Dylan acknowledges but never does completely acknowledge where he's stealing all his stuff from, right? But I never felt that there was anything to be dodgy about. I guess part of that is that my father in taking me to museums and galleries was steeping me in 20, late 20th century visual art practice. And, you know, if you have a relationship to post-war visual art, apart from strict abstraction, whether it's, you know, Dada or pop or collage art or appropriation art, these practices are so openly celebrated and I always dug it. I always thought, yes, that's very natural. That makes sense. You grab stuff, you put it together, you make it your own, and you, and you wear that on your sleeve. You do the opposite of being dodgy about it. So I naturally slipped into this kind of self-description. Anytime anyone asked, I'd say, well, yeah, actually, there's a bunch of this in here. And, and then I started to realize people would become either uncomfortable or defensive on my behalf. They'd say, yes, but it's it's your voice. And I'd say, well, yeah, well, so what? Yeah, sure, it might be my voice. I probably is, but isn't it more interesting to talk about all these things that are flowing in and through what I do? And that's become, I guess, something that I never felt I could adjust. <laughs> I wasn't going to go back and start, start being defensive about this. So instead, I've just worn it increasingly as my badge. I think that's something Quentin Tarantino sort of does, too, in his films, which is take from yeah, a variety. Yeah, there's a lot of pastiche and, and appropriation. I was trying to get his handle on that essay. Um, did you actually s steal individual sentences and create the essay out of yeah. that? Yeah, I did. I, every, everything in there begins as a, I mean, it's really a collage, a text collage. In a way, the thing that's the most egregious about that is that I, I even rewrote people because it, I had to fit it all together. So I would have something extraordinary from some towering figure. I was taking things out of Saul Bellow's correspondence, and I was taking a sentence from, or a paragraph from Frederick Jameson, and dovetailing it with something Mark Twain said, or, you know, um, at one point there's a Harry S. Truman quote in there. And then I would take their syntax, and I would kind of smooth it into, you know, I would make Mark Twain and Harry Truman into the same thing, and all of that meant that I had to make all these brazen changes to it. So it was collage that became something else, shape-shifting. Well, let's get back a little bit to the career. So after that, you published a couple of shorter novels after Gum with Occasional Music. Uh, how did those do? Were those successful financially? I don't know. I mean, I, I was always just so bloody grateful to be 
published, I, did, I didn't really think about it in terms of, you know, until Motherless Brooklyn changed the framework, I thought I was having the most extraordinary success. And that's partly because pretty much everything I identified with had been only marginally commercially viable. The kinds of writing that I loved most had tended to need to be rediscovered or pulled back into print or celebrated in retrospect. And I thought, the books are being published. They're, they're floating into the culture. I meet people who read them. They're in hard covers. They're going to be on, you know, I wanted to be in used bookstores. And that was definitely starting to, to be possible. You know, they were getting remainder. It was perfect. Um, <laughs> and I didn't really think about needing it to be anything other than that. I was living the, the dream, as they say. And I've accepted also gratefully the other framework that's come with, you know, the, the way that Motherless Brooklyn changed my relationship to publishing, that my publisher noticed that I existed as opposed to just sort of, I mean, I think Gun With Occasional Music actually surprised them. And they certainly, they were in the black on it because they'd paid so little for it. It still doesn't mean that your publisher thinks you're really their primary occupation. I would say that I, my books were like the cigarette machine in the bar. Like every once in a while you go and you check the cigarette machine. It's got some quarters in it. Hey, I could like buy a meal with all the quarters in that cigarette. But you don't think that that's your primary business. But after Motherless Brooklyn, I became part of my publisher's plans. And that, that brought with it, you know, um, interesting opportunities. And, but also, in a way, the burden of playing the, you know, the game on, on the main stage, which I wasn't... I hadn't been expecting to do. I was, I was very excited to be a dark horse forever. But you weren't. And the origins of Motherless Brooklyn, it's a bigger book than any of the others, and it's more clearly mainstream than any of the others. Um, when you were working on it, what was going on through <laughs> your mind? Were you just saying, okay, I've got a guy with Tourette's and I'm setting it in where I grew up? Or... In some ways, I thought it was the craziest thing I'd done. But I also was aware that the way I was writing about New York City felt different. That the way I claimed sort of the precincts of my, of my own childhood, it was surprising to me. The traction I discovered in, you know, I guess you'd say in mainstream is a word that never makes any sense to me. But in, in I mean, first of all, how mainstream is it to write a book that firmly a genre book, because it was, a, it was a, another detective story, and narrated by a character with Tourette's, and, you know, the language was, in some ways, the most experimental language I'd ever attempted, because his syndrome, the neurological condition, infects the prose, there was this kind of Joycean wordplay that was taking over the book, so it felt to me like the most audacious language I'd ever tried to put on the page. But the fact that it was kind of adhering to Brooklyn in the 70s and these real streets and these real schools that I'd gone to suddenly gave it a quality of being simultaneously the most um, mundane or the most uh, mimetic thing I'd ever done. And I guess that's what you mean when you call it mainstream, but I didn't have a, certainly didn't have a sense of calculation about that. I didn't have a scheme. I just was so delighted. This is my prevailing feeling. I'm just so delighted each time that I get to do it again the way I, I, I want to. You know, I've, I've taken so many different shifts and swerves at different points. And um, my good fortune is that I'm just not locked into any plan. I can write the book that interests me. What brought you back to New York then? I had been thinking about going back to the city for a while. And I was just in a position to write full-time. Not because I was making a tremendous amount of money, but because I was still living like a bookseller. I was beholden to no one. I could live in a marginal apartment in a marginal neighborhood. I moved back to Greenpoint. At that time, when I moved back to New York, I found a place in Greenpoint, which was a strictly Polish neighborhood, and I found a giant railroad apartment in Greenpoint for $800 a month, and I shared it with someone. So my rent was $400, and I'd accepted another advance for a book, and I thought, I could be a full-time writer. I don't have to live in Berkeley anymore, because it was the bookstores that, you know, that had kept me alive here. And I was curious. There were friends I was missing in New York, and I was restless, and it was something I wanted to try. But I didn't really conceive that I was going to then devote 10 years to writing about Brooklyn while, while living there. If I'd had that, that scheme in mind, I would have probably 
felt intimidated. It was something I felt my way into. Well, it sounds to me as if Fortress of Solitude almost grew out of the thoughts about your earlier life that you had already sort of explored in Motherless Brooklyn. Yeah. The things that had surprised me. You know, when, it, when I conceived Motherless Brooklyn, I had the fact that it was a detective story and the fact that it was about Tourette syndrome before I had the idea that it was set in Brooklyn. It needed to be set somewhere, and it, my first impulse might have been to make it another California book, because that's the native home of the hard-boiled detective story. But I, I had just moved back to the city, and suddenly I, it interested me to make this sort of strange conflation, because I was hearing the language spoken on the streets, you know, that language that had engaged me so powerfully when I played with, with street kids. And I was hearing the, the vibrancy and the hostility and the abruptness and the sarcasm and the edginess and the weird negotiations of different languages and different vernaculars in, in collision on the New York streets. And I thought, this is kind of like Tourette's. Uh, and so I thought, I'm going to push these things together and see if they, if they can be like creatively misunderstood to be one thing. So it fit. But yeah, that led me into this this more personal mode in Fortress of Solitude, for sure. Well, then let's go back, because there's a strain that you haven't spoken about, which now comes in, which is your background reading comic books. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was um, a very devoted reader of comic books for, you know, like a decade of my life. But the, the important thing to explain about that is I was a very devoted reader of, like, the same 35 comic books over and over again. It wasn't that I had any real grasp of the life of that field. It's that a number of these talismanic objects had fallen into my lap, and it was like Talmudic study. I would just burn holes in these panels, you know, t turning them and tattering them until the pages softened into something like, like cheese. And the influence of them had everything to do with the mysterious failure to contextualize them. I didn't really know where they came from or where they were headed. And it was a real shock to me years later when I realized that new comic books were still being published and that, in fact, people cared immensely about them because they were coming into some kind of artistic relevance. It took me a long time to catch up with the world of graphic novels because I, I just thought, you know, it was something that, that was almost like a private obsession. I had a couple of underground comics. I had a couple of R. Crumb comics. I had the key issues of uh, Marvel comics from the early 70s that, that had fascinated me, Omega the Unknown and Power Man and Iron Fist, and I had a tattered Batman comic. But if you had told me that the people who invented those things had died 100 years before I was born, I would have believed you. And that later on I would like bump into them, or some of them had been even rehabilitated and turned into important American artists. It took me a long time to figure out that this wasn't a totally arcane world. To me, it was, it was like the music I heard on the radio, and it was like the little cartoons that came in the, in the bubblegum wrappers, and it was like scraps of advertising that haunted me from my childhood, you know, a Bosco ad in black and white from 1968. It just swirled around in my imagination, but I didn't know what to connect it to. It wasn't like there was a Pacific film archive where I could go and realize that these pieces of vernacular American art had a context and a continuity and that there had been uh, serious academic attention given to them. The stuff that I loved, you know, it's funny, people are always calling it pop art, and I always think, well, the word always seems wrong to me because most of what I loved was defiantly unpopular. You know, it was the stuff that failed, the characters that no one even remembered. This is a, f a flash forward. So, so many years later, I was asked by Marvel Comics to, to write a comic book for them. This is a bizarre kind of full circle experience in my life. And I was sitting with these two editors, and I think, that, of course, they were expecting me, you know, it was like they were offering me the keys to the castle. You know, you can work with one of our famous branded properties. And I'm sure they were expecting me to say, oh, I've always wanted to write a, a Spider-Man comic book, or I've always wanted to do a, a Fantastic Four story. And I said, Omega the Unknown, which was a, a comic book that had lasted for 10 issues from 1975 to 1976. And the story was unfinished. It was like Kafka's The Castle. It disintegrated into fragments and, and then, you know, was, I think, as far as the, the world of 
comic books was concerned, was just mercifully forgotten. And so the two editors sitting there, it was like I'd gone into the castle and they'd offered me all the jewels and I'd been like, you know that ashtray your kid made for you in fourth grade? Can I have that? One of the two guys who worked for this company didn't even know who the character was. And there's this weird place where commercial culture fails and becomes like um, a cargo cult or folk art that I think is, is the most fascinating to me. It's true of a lot of pop music that I like, too. It's the, it's the sort of failed. It's so weird because as I'm thinking, listening to him, realizing that all of these things that were failures, Philip K. Dick, <laughs> these comic books, I mean, when we were reading them, you know, the Marvel comics as teenagers, the idea that these minor characters would suddenly have their own TV shows or that, you know, billion dollars for the Avengers. I mean, that these things became enormous successes or that 20 movies with Philip K. Dick names on them. You know, just astonishing. You must be onto something. Except in the wrong way, because I mean, to to my eye, almost every movie made from a Philip K. Dick story or from a Marvel comic is an unbearable, obnoxious pile of CGI (laughs) explosions. They, They don't grasp what I see in those materials at all. Well, let's get back then. Okay, so this, this latest mashup we're up to is <laughs> Jonathan Lethem's Life in Brooklyn meets comic books. Yeah. So uh, where did the comic books come in when you were sitting down and you're going, okay, what I've got here, what do I have here? Well, I'd had this idea, and actually it was an idea that I'd had troubling me, like a dream I'd had well before Motherless Brooklyn, and maybe as far back as my college years when I was writing Gun with Occasional Music and, and Amnesia Moon, what should have been my college years, I sort of had this, this feeling that I wanted to write a novel that was like a, a Saul Bellow or a Norman Mailer novel, but about superheroes. And it connected to a moment in my childhood when I'd imagined or pretended to, to imagine really seeing a, a figure in a cape leap from the top of one of the brownstones to another. And it was the sense that, I, that fell on me so powerfully, that image that he could do nothing to help us, <laughs> that he was useless. And so I had this image of the useless superhero in the neighborhood where I grew up, unable to affix his powers which were negligible anyway, to the problems of the teenagers on the street below. And that was the origin of Fortress of Solitude. So, you know, it just was lurking there, this image, until I'd gained the novelistic reach to put it to any real... I mean, I couldn't have written that book until I did. I was barely... It was... It was I was stretching. You know, part of that is your, re- your reading life. So I've talked about early influences. You know, in my 20s, I'm reading kind of these slightly problematic genre writers, you know, who are always straining to do something that's not quite fitting in the genre. Highsmith, Chandler, Philip K. Dick, J.G. Ballard. And then I discovered these fabulators, you know, Calvino, Borges, Kafka, Cortazar. Even as I'm defining myself according to these ideas of what you can be as a writer, it was in my latter part of my 20s, my early 30s, I suddenly discovered a connection to the great Jewish-American novelist. I read all of Malamud and all of Roth. I read Henry Roth's Call It Sleep, which was more than any other single text, was the, the emblematic you know, model for Fortress of Solitude. I read uh, James Baldwin's Another Country, which was terrifically important because suddenly I recognized the New York City I'd come of age inside. The racial mixing and the artists and the bohemians and the sense of tragic, unfulfilled purpose it just, I felt, oh, wait, this place I'm from has been written about, and I can, I can be interested in these mimetic writers, and I, maybe I could start to acquire some of their power as well. But I had to devour all of that stuff before I could become the writer who would know how to put A Fortress of Solitude together. And now it's a musical. Yeah, it was really exciting. Uh, what a strange experience. It took a very long time for that to come together, and I didn't know whether it was something I would be proud of or, or whether it would matter, whether anyone would ever see it. But I really liked the guys who were making it, the composer and the director and the, the book writer. 
they would talk to me about the book and about what they were trying to to do with it, and I would feel so moved and compelled just by their devotion to it. They were spending so much time living inside Fortress of Solitude trying to excavate a musical from it. It seems like such a perverse decision, and I just love them for making it. And it's a very strange journey for me in that, you know, I feel very culturally competent about a lot of mediums. Like if someone were trying to make a film out of one of my books, I could have a lot of opinions about that. I have a lot of opinions about film. And I've written critically about films, and I've seen thousands upon thousands of narrative films. But I've gone, you know, I went to The Wiz when I was 12, and I went to Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street when I was like 17, 16 or 17. And I don't think I've ever seen a musical since. I have no understanding of the way this form operates. So I was just at their mercy. I just, they would keep coming to me and saying, is this good? And I would say, I don't know. <laughs> it, but the songs began to emerge and they moved me enormously because they were like these x-rays of the book. It was like taking the material of my own childhood and pushing it outside of myself into this other range of expression and I would actually find myself d dissolving in tears. Every time they showed me anything, I would just be like falling apart. I thought, well, you know, I don't care if no one else ever likes this. I'm digging it because it's putting a mirror to me that I could never imagine otherwise. It's something I don't know how to create. And here it was, music was sort of pouring me back into myself, into the vessel of myself in some strange way. And, of course, I began to see it, maybe I was just justifying this, as the only possible way you could adapt this material, because the whole thing about that novel is it's, it's mimetic, and yet not. It has this ridiculous metaphor come to life in it. The kid can fly and he's invisible, right? It's not real. It's real and not real. And so the thing about a stage musical is that it's real and not real, because people are on stage in front of you, they're embodied, but then they break into song and they express their deepest feelings to each other in this pure transmission that's not possible in life. So it's like a kind of superheroic, you know, transformation. They're people and they're other than people. And so I thought, okay, this is exactly right. This is the way this material was always destined to be realized. I want to skip ahead to Dissident Gardens because I didn't get a chance to interview you for that yeah. one. What prompted you to go back to Brooklyn again, go back into the 50s? Well, it's Queens. I oh, actually, I actually, right. I shifted right. that book Sunny, to Queens. Uh, yeah, that was Forest Hills. Yeah, and Sunnyside Gardens, and yeah. um, uh, what prompted you to go back in in there? I mean, I, I grew yeah. up not far from there, yeah. by the way. So. Well, so yeah, Distant Gardens is. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a. I guess since I just put this out there, I could say one thing: it is is an even deeper engagement with that stratum of you know the the, the Jewish American novelists who I'd you know held at bay for so long, and then they'd taken me by storm when I let them in. And, you know, I guess in particular, it's a version of a, of a Philip Roth strategy, the way he started doing Newark in the, you know, what, what became known as a trilogy. I don't know if he intended it that way, but American Pastoral and I Married a Communist. And I, I started to see that I had material of that kind that I'd left kind of on the table. It didn't fit in Fortress of Solitude because that was the story of a kid and a kid dealing with his feelings about being this weird kind of reverse minority, right? A, a, a white kid in a black and, and Dominican and Puerto Rican neighborhood who both is privileged and completely like a, you know, a, a bug under a rock at the same time. But the larger framework of family histories didn't fit in that book. But I started to think about my grandmother and my mother's relationship to my grandmother's thwarted communist ideals. And in a way, it was like I suddenly saw that I could write my mother's Fortress of Solitude. If I'd broken away from Brooklyn to, to another life in Manhattan, she'd done the same thing before me, breaking out of Queens into the Greenwich Village folk scene. And the relationship between the, the new left, it's not new anymore, but the, the difference between the proletarian left of my grandmother's 1920s and 1930s communism and the world that the hippies, the folk scene, and then the hippies made and that my mother was so participant in and that had formed me so powerfully, I suddenly saw a really 
rich breakdown between those two realities. And I understood it as a subject. But it took a long time for me to see how I could relate my own experience to that material. Because I, you know, I'm, I'm born of two generations of protest politics, and I myself was so, you know, kind of inert. I was like a, a completely shrouded, you know, my political life was really inexpressible. And then um, right as I was beginning the book and, and trying to understand how I could build from this past to a point of view that was my own, the Occupy movement exploded. And I felt so excited and so strange because suddenly there was something I could relate myself to and I, and I believed in it so totally. For a little while I thought, what if my book has a happy ending? Well, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't. I think it opens into the present. But that was a gift that the, that the Occupy movement uh, happened to give me. I mean, it wasn't, that's not what it, what it was for. It had nothing to do with me. It was so merciful because I could suddenly see my grandmother and my mother through this lens of my present uh, desire. It's not even a, talking about commitment because I didn't do anything that extraordinary. I showed up a few times. But the enormous connection I suddenly felt to my left desire, my, my desire for transformation in our society along political terms, was my appetite, which I could no longer disguise, that connected me to their lives. Is there really a Sunnyside Gardens? Yes, that's very real. Yeah. That's quite real. Yeah. I remember growing up near Clearview Gardens, yeah. and the garden apartment the garden apartment is just unique to Queens. It's a very important structure in the in the urban sociology of New York City, and it connect. I mean, it is specifically a socialist experiment. I mean, the idea of the communal garden and workers' homes on a block surrounding a precinct that belongs to everyone and no one was a deliberate social experiment, and it connected to Eleanor Roosevelt, and it had its roots in German garden apartment experiments. So this, was a, this was a really particular ideal, and it was, in fact, the one in, the one in Sunnyside. Sunnyside Gardens was conceived of as a place for communists to go and live in for a long time. It was uh, dominated by avowed communists. So my, my grandmother lived there briefly, and my mother remembered it, and then my grandmother broke with it. And I, you know, I never write about family histories directly. I always sort of, to claim them for fiction, I have to also exaggerate and transform and, and conflate. And so I decided that I would write a book as if my, my mother had grown up only there, continuously there. This is the point in the interview where I began reading from the cards. Many years later, this is one of the first questions, many years later after many of your books, the two lingering images that captured my imagination are the strange sci-fi dream deer creatures <laughs> and the luminous illusion from Chronic City. Can you speak a bit about their meanings and origins? Sure. I love that question because those are two of my favorite things. I mean, sometimes you, good luck of having something appear in your own work that is mysterious to you and that you can kind of behold as much as make it. You just, it's there and you're, and you're entranced by it. In Girl and Landscape, uh, the girl moves to this planet, which is a kind of a vision of the American West, but it's also Mars at the same time. And there are these creatures that are sort of almost bioluminescent, kind of semi-visible, witnessing sprite-like creatures, but they're described as household deer. The term comes from a Chinese translation, uh, or translation from the Chinese word for mice. And I heard that mice, the literal translation of the word common mouse in, uh, in, in Chinese was that they were called household deer. And I think what became so stirring to me, apart from being amused and just remembering it and thinking, that's good, that's great, I've got to use that somehow, was the way it destroyed distance. It was as though the home became suddenly like a space where you'd see something tiny and think it was very far away. And since the book was partly about change in scale, I feel like I have a soundtrack. The family moves from inner city Brooklyn to this space that's like Monument Valley, and the scale is so disorienting. So this idea of the household deer, which were far away and close at the same time, 
they were witnessing you and they were also scampering away and disappearing and no, had nothing to do with you simultaneously. I think that was what, what was evoked for me in that image. But, you know, they also, they look kind of like the roadrunner in the Ward, Warner Brothers cartoon, I, I think. In Chronic City, there's another mysterious presence, which you mentioned in this question. I was thinking of Henry James, The Golden Bowl, and I was also thinking about Ubik in Philip K. Dick's uh, novel of that name, and the idea of the kind of product or substance or object that is simultaneously fixed in our universe, that it's a kind of a commodity, but it also is an emblem or a chalice for the metaphysical property of being, and therefore it's what you can never possess. That's what The Chaldron was to me, and I wanted to write a, a book that had a golden bowl in it that was a, uh, on a par with that, the, the, the way uh, Henry James brought that image to life. How about the dog in Chronic City? Oh, yeah, the dog. Well, Ava's a real dog. I was just writing about a, a dog friend of mine, actually. And <laughs> so this, so this is a good story. So she was a real a pit bull, a very loving, sweet pit bull. She's still alive. I see her when, I'm, when I visit New York. And Ava was, um, lived in the projects, and the police shot off her front, one of her forelegs in a drug bust. They broke down the doors, and they saw a pit bull, and they just immediately shot off one of its legs. And, and the family gave up on her or were arrested. I'm not sure whether they could have held on to her after this confrontation with the police. But so my friend Michael uh, rescued her. She was a rescue animal and the most extraordinary, loving, and gigantic, and, and physically fascinating. Because she had so much strength that on three legs she could still bowl you over and, and jump, and, 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 but also would sometimes... Uh, miscalculate and slide and make all kinds of weird lunging moves because of the missing foreleg. And she entered the book. She became, you know, this, so Chronic City is a book about, among other things, about, well, so it's got the children, this, this mysterious chalice in the book. And the characters become obsessed with childrens, which represent to them the possibility that they're living in a virtual reality because they can never get hold of one. And it's a book about the somatic life versus the uh, disembodied life of the screen. Everything in that book is a war between physical presence and the, the absolutes of the body and the esoteric life of our transmission into some other realm, you know, on the other side of a computer screen. And so Ava is kind of the ultimate, you know, she, maybe she's in a way the, the counterpoint to the children. She's only of the body. Ava just you know, when that dog lunges and touches you, you are in the world. And you can only dance with her or shove her away or kiss her or let her stick her tongue up your nose, but you're definitely not in a computer game at that moment. Uh, going back to Motherless Brooklyn, uh, where did you learn from and who did you appropriate your knowledge from? Uh, what's it's like inside the head of someone with Tourette's? Oh, yeah. Well, so... You know, it's hard to go back to this world because thanks to a number of different popularizations, now we kind of all know what Tourette syndrome is. It's in the time since I conceived writing that book, it's been in innumerable movies and, and TV shows and, you know, comedians make reference to it and everyone can, can rely on people getting what it is. But when I started thinking about Tourette's, it wasn't quite so well saturated into the culture. And I learned about it, you know, I hadn't heard about it. I learned about it by reading an essay in Oliver Sacks. He actually writes about Tourette's beautifully twice. In um, Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, there's one essay, and in An Anthropologist on Mars, there's another one called, and that one in particular called A Surgeon's Tale, is about a, a brain surgeon who has a very extreme manifestation of Tourette's. And I just latched onto this. I recognized it. I felt some part of me was immediately pulled into a relationship to this. Now, I always liked reading Sachs case histories, but this was different. I felt implicated. There's something about the way that he describes the relationship to language, uh, and I suddenly started to see my own relationship to language as a compulsive one, maybe beyond my control. And it was one of those moments of self-recognition and simultaneously creative misunderstanding that you choose to embrace. You know, let's just decide that this is my thing to write about. Even though no one would ever diagnose me as having it, I feel that inside my head, that's me. 
And so it was just became something that I wanted to study and understand because of this feeling of implication and recognition. Well, you were all worried that somebody might say, hey, you got this wrong. Sure, absolutely. But I did work, I did study, and, you know, one of the simplest ways to get comfortable with it was I read, as well as I could, actual texts from the neurological literature so I could try to understand what the hardwiring of this was. But the more important reading, in a way, was I read the kind of books, very banal in some ways, but very moving, that people with Tourette's read to figure out how the hell to cope. Or more, more often, the books their families read. You know, so you have a kid with Tourette's. What's important to the people who actually are living this life? And you read those books and you start to understand the most crucial thing, the distinction for them was that it was not madness. That it was a neurological trait. And if anything, they were more normative because this part of them was presenting such turbulent kind of chaotic impressions on other people, they were desperate to conform and fit into life in, in ordinary ways, to be able to just go on a date or, you know, or go to college. And so I just foregrounded this simple distinction. It's, it's a neurological disorder. It's behavior, not emotional or psychological madness. And once I'd made that distinction, I had people with Tourette's thanking me instead of, you know, however much I also exaggerated it for, for comic effect or, you know, had dangerous amounts of fun working it into my story, I'd made the, I'd made the one distinction they wanted made about it clear. That earned me good faith. And I started getting invited to be, then it was embarrassing because, of course, I'd put everything I knew about it. I'd exhausted my knowledge in the book. And then I was suddenly pulled into these panels and I was sitting alongside who experts or people with Tourette's and I was expected to have something to say and I would just, I would just listen instead. So I, I became retroactively, of course, a much bigger expert because I started being in the Tourette's community having written the book. But then I, I'd already written the book so there's nowhere for the new knowledge to go. Does this make any sense? Oh, yeah, sure. How did MacArthur change anything? <laughs> right, so the, the MacArthur Foundation fellowship uh, that I was given. Well, it's um, just a form of incredible good luck that freed me to do the work I wanted to do. And, you know, I've had this luck in different ways at different times. I think now I can almost look at, at my life as having three chapters of, you know, how the wolf was kept from the door, essentially. When I was in my early 30s and I published Gun with Occasional Music and Amnesia Moon and actually climbed across the table, I was published very modestly, as you know, Richard was alluding, but all three of those books were optioned by Hollywood. This was a time when the money still flowed. Lots of novels were optioned very generously. This isn't really true so much anymore. It's rare now. And that was the money that kept me writing in those years. It simply paid the rent. So the next books, you know, Motherless Brooklyn and Fortress of Solitude become possible because of that good fortune. And then when that tailed off, when I stopped having that kind of luck, partly because I, I think I wrote books that became less obviously candidates to be optioned. I mean, none of those were made into films, but they can't take the money away. Anyway, I stopped having that form of luck, and right when I might have been forced to make some very difficult compromises, the MacArthur Foundation gave me this fellowship, and that was the next phase of my, my support. You know, I, and I don't mean to say that I'm not paid by my publisher, but if you look, novelists on the whole do other things. They teach or they are journalists or unless they write very commercial fiction of a, of a type I don't really write. I've been blessed with readers, but I don't make that kind of impression in the marketplace. So the second good luck was, was the MacArthur, and that kept me writing. I mean, really, Chronic City comes out of that. The freedom to write that long, crazy book is the, that's the MacArthur book in many ways. But I also, one of the first things I did when I got the MacArthur was I spent a year assembling the Ecstasy of Influence essay, a collage of, you know, it was like writing my dissertation. And Harper's published it, but believe me, the, the amount Harper's gives you for one essay does not justify a year's labor, but the MacArthur made that effort possible. And then, you know, the third chapter of this good luck is that I did quite to my surprise, and now really to my delight because I fit there so well. I got pulled into academia in the happiest possible way. I got this extraordinary invitation to, to occupy the, um, the Disney chair, 
It's an endowed chair at Pomona College. And that's, you know, that's the third phase of, of my getting to do what I want to do in my writing. You know, no one can compromise the writing because I'm always supported by these, you know, angels from elsewhere. Would you comment on the position advanced by certain of your contemporaries, for instance, Zadie Smith, on the future of the novel, a novel, for example, Remainder by Tom McCarthy, and also what does avant mean to you, and which authors do you consider avant? Mm, that's a tricky nest of, I mean, there's so many things I could respond to in there. I know the Zadie Smith essay that the question refers to, and it, it kind of pits um, Tom McCarthy's remainder against another novel by Joseph O'Neill called Netherland and says that, you know, McCarthy's shows a future that's a desirable kind of um, field of practice for the novel, whereas Netherland is a kind of dead end. I liked both of those books. I'm very omnivorous in my, and, and very, in some ways, very easily delighted. There's a lot of novels I love that, that come from all kinds of different ranges or, or, you know, fields of operation. And um, I'm excited about the kinds of things that Zadie was praising in Remainder, which really is one of my uh, favorite novels of the last few years. But it doesn't, to me, exclude what was terrific about Joseph O'Neill's Netherlands. So, you know, you, you quoted me in my, you know, my kind of like my resistance to tax, taxonomy when you were introducing me. And I guess this falls into that category where I don't really recognize the exclusion that she's trying to make so much, but I'm glad she was uh, excited about a book that I was so excited about. You know, I, I get that every so often. I talk to David Shields, and he talks about yeah. the big baggy novel versus yeah. Ben Lerner. You know, yeah, Shields is, Shields is fascinating because I love his rhetoric, but the things he, he's trying to put a quarantine on something, and I don't really feel that there's any need for one. There's, there's remarkable work being done in a very traditional, you know, uh, I mean, I think the, the novel is an unbelievably resilient and um, encompassing form. And it, it gathers up new f materials out of popular culture and vernacular culture very ably and very readily. But it's, it's also got deep roots in a kind of traditional practice. And I love those. It's why I love reading novels, because the baseline condition of the novel is exciting to me. It can do so many different kinds of things, often simultaneously. Can you describe your writing practice? Do you structure your time and how? And how do you get through a slow day when it isn't coming? And how do you keep distractions at bay? <laughs> I can tell you, I can give some descriptions of my workplace and my, my habits. I always think that the, the first thing I want to say is that it's, you know, it's done out of pleasure. I'm excited to, to write fiction, and I'm, I'm mostly enjoying the activity. It doesn't mean there aren't things about it that are awkward or distressing or require a concentration or that make me feel stupid on any given day, but that on the whole, you know, novels are written, I think this is too little described by novelists who are often eager to be given credit for their diligence and their sacrifices. Novels are written, certainly novels that are someone's eighth or ninth or tenth novels are written by people who are probably digging what they're doing. They feel like they can find something nourishing in the, in the activity and the time spent. And I really do feel that. So that doesn't mean that it came to me automatically. I think learning to be a writer who wrote steadily and, you know, that I could realize my ambitions to write novels again and again, it's almost like a kind of... Um, uh, athletic practice. It's like a running a marathon. It's, a pr it, it's muscle memory. You, you put yourself into this situation that's not completely normal and you start to make it normal. You make it something your body expects you to do. I like uh, getting up in the morning and knowing that I have some time to, to run it out a while, to play, to feel those muscles stretch. And, but that was built. That was constructed. It was a habituation. I think that's a much better word than discipline, you know, which always sounds like you're standing apart from yourself with a, like a whip or a chair, like there's a lion and you're disciplining the, the bad writer who's not writing. And I don't feel that. I feel that I'm, I'm you know, sometimes I'm more on my game and, and sometimes I, I do succumb to distractions, but I never feel that it's a hair shirt or a, or a sacrifice or a discipline situation. It's much more about if I'm good to myself, I make sure I 
get the best possible occasion on any given day. And it's, it's rewarding the way someone who loves to meditate might feel. And I've never been able to meditate. Uh, so I have no idea what I'm talking about. What I do, so on a simple material sense, I get up in the morning and I write. I, I think it's best. I don't, you know, when I say I'm a morning writer, I don't mean a certain hour. I don't mean 7 o'clock is good and 11 o'clock would be, would be negligence. Whatever it is that's the morning to you. But I think putting it first in your day happens to be a very positive thing. I encourage my writing students always. I say, if it's important to you, put it before the rest of the world comes and pulls you into the, all, all, all these involvements and compromises and opportunities. Just make it first. And that's a simple enough solution that usually works for me. And then I try to write every day. Rather than having an obsession with a page count or a word count or watching the clock and saying, I, I must write for four hours or something, I just think if I touch the material every day, it's going to advance. The project will advance. And it keeps me dreaming about it. If, if I'm writing something, if I add a sentence or a paragraph to the project every day, then it's, it's sort of always with me. I wake up thinking about it, and it's, it's in my dreams. So if you had a dead end, it's kind of like, okay, well, tomorrow's another day. I think people who beat themselves up for a, a single or even a whole string of uninspired days are in trouble because you shouldn't be beating yourself up. It's a matter of abiding. And a lot of things in, in novels are essentially problem solving. You, you make one solution and that creates seven new problems and then you sit with them and you just wait and think about them and, and, and it advance the cause. And it, it's um, something you have to learn to tolerate. It's about tolerances for, for not knowing yet, for just the sustained experience of not knowing but waiting. Okay, so now my last two questions. The yeah. first, what are your favorite Philip K. Dick novels? Dr. Blood Money, Ubik, Vallis, uh, Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. How many do I get? You mentioned Three Sigmata, which is my favorite. Yeah, one, you know. <laughs> yeah. On any given day, any of those could be numero uno, I think. Uh, so that's a good cluster. But I, you know, A Scanner Darkly. Yeah, yeah I like Game Players of Titan. That's a good book. <laughs> He's got a lot of good ones. <laughs> yeah. And finally, what are, you, what are you working on now? Okay, well, this is, I should have talked about this earlier. I just finished a novel, which will come out in October, that's set half in Berkeley. So... I'll come back and talk about that. But it's a, a medium-sized novel, not, not one of the short ones, not one of the long ones. It's a book I began while I was living in Berlin on sabbatical, and it starts in Berlin. It's, it's about an expatriate American, well, specifically a, a guy who grew up in Marin County and Berkeley, but has kind of renounced it. He, he, he's running from this part of his identity into this fantasy he has of being a kind of international man of mystery. He wants, he wants to be like James Bond. And he, he's a gambler. He's a professional backgammon hustler. And he lives wherever the next backgammon game is, whether it's Abu Dhabi or Singapore or, or a you know, men's club in London or, or as the case is uh, in Berlin, he's got a big game anywhere but the United States, which he never wants to return to. And then uh, circumstances force him back very much into his old precincts, and so the rest of the book is set in the Bay Area, and, and it's called A Gambler's Anatomy. Any talking kangaroos? No kangaroos in this one, <laughs> yeah. It's 100% kangaroo-free. All right, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks Lincoln. so much. Yeah. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>